0: I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on Painting and the Origins of the Modern Public.
1: In the art treatises, it is a kind of commonplace to refer to painters as peaceful soldiers. They're sort of like these war heroes who fight and give their lives um, to protect the populace, which makes you think that painting itself maybe is helping to keep the peace.
0: In the Dutch Republic of the 17th century, where painters were portrayed as peaceful soldiers, painting played a crucial part in the creation of a modern public sphere. Painting generated a market where popular taste, rather than patronage, determined what would be produced. Painting gave private life public relevance by displaying homely workaday scenes. Painting fostered a culture of discussion by creating works that invited interpretation. And in all these ways, painting helped to recreate the public world as a place where private citizens and private concerns had a voice. In today's program, we'll explore the way Dutch painting changed Dutch society, and then look at what the Dutch example says about social change more generally.
2: Society is not a relentlessly structured thing. Society certainly has its structures and it has its durable features. But society is something that is made all the time, is being made all the time by people and things as they change their relationships with one another. Our series is called The Origins of the Modern Public. It's
0: presented by David Cayley.
3: The history of modern Dutch painting begins with the Reformation, and the contest over the place of images in religious life that it provoked. In 1568, the provinces of the Northern Netherlands that would come to make up the Dutch Republic revolted against their overlord, the Habsburg King of Spain, Philip II. This touched off 80 years of intermittent war with Spain. For much of this time, the Dutch Republic enjoyed de facto independence, but this was not recognized by treaty until 1648 as part of the Peace of Westphalia. The leader of the rebellion was a Protestant prince, William of Orange. The issues that sparked the revolt were onerous taxation, the Spanish crown's attempt to impose more centralized control, and religious liberty. Angela Van Halen is professor of art history at McGill and a member of an interdisciplinary research group called Making Publics, which has been investigating the creation of a new kind of public in early modern Europe.
1: The revolt is a political war, but it also becomes a religious war because you know the Habsburg Empire is Roman Catholic, and so these territories that break away become Calvinist. In a way, that's the religion of William of Orange, and so it becomes very much connected to this political revolt. So that it's got a kind of emotional intensity I think uh, that reformation and revolt went hand in hand so that they threw off the Spanish and they threw off the Roman Catholics at the same time. So there's a fair bit of violence in the churches um, so that during the revolt which is a time when you know people are already fighting in the cities, the Protestants went into the Roman Catholic cathedrals, these you know Gothic cathedrals and destroyed the artwork in them so that they, you know, tore down the statues and smashed them and broke the stained glass windows. If there were wall paintings, those were later covered over. Uh, So they took the cathedrals from the Roman Catholics. So that was one of the things that changed in this war. These buildings that had always been Roman Catholic buildings became Protestant buildings.
3: This outburst of iconoclasm, literally image-breaking, left deep scars in the Netherlands. There were many Protestants in the Northern Netherlands and William, the leader of the revolt, was a Calvinist. But the majority of the people were still Catholic and still deeply attached to their religious tradition. Just how attached, Angela Van Halen says, was revealed when Catholic France sought to extend its hegemony over the Netherlands in the later 17th century.
1: As late as 1672, the French invade the Dutch Republic. So this is under Louis XIV now. So this is over a century after the iconoclasm, after the cleansing of the churches, and at that time, the Roman Catholics, the actual the Dutch Roman Catholics, go into the these churches that have now become Calvinist, and they pull out all of the Calvinist things. So they take you know the pulpit and the Bible and uh, the church pews, and they they destroy all of those things. So there's a kind of Roman Catholic iconoclasm where they take back these buildings so you can see that for you know over a hundred years there's been this desire to get these buildings back and so the French allow them to when the French invade the Dutch cities it allows for that to happen for a really short time for a couple of years and then it goes back the other way and the Calvinists go back and take out all of the Roman Catholic stuff and turn it back into a Calvinist space
3: Calvinism which was the primary form of Protestantism in the Netherlands, derived from the teachings of John Calvin. The English form of the name is so familiar that it's sometimes hard to remember that he was properly Jean Calvin, a French Protestant who established his ministry in Geneva in the 1540s. All strains of Protestantism revived, to some extent, the second of the Ten Commandments given to Moses. In the King James Version, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath. But John Calvin interpreted this ban with exceptional strictness.
1: For Calvin, God is so omnipotent that God cannot be contained in any material thing. So that's one of his critiques of Roman Catholicism is you know the idea that God is present in the host transubstantiation for Calvin the host is is more of a symbol or a sign but not doesn't actually contain God in it. God isn't present in relics which is very important for the Roman Catholics and God isn't present in visual images so if you think of the Roman Catholic churches they're full of altar pieces and statues and and things like that so so for Calvin All of that risks idolatry, that people will worship the thing rather than God. And so there's a separating out of sort of this very abstract God from the material world. So images aren't used in worship at all, where they're very central to worship for the Roman Catholics. So what tends to happen then in the Dutch Republic, in terms of art production where in other countries the Roman Catholic church is a big patron of art um, so if artists can get church commissions then they have a kind of fixed income and they've uh, you know it's a kind of successful way to be an artist in the dutch republic you can't work for the church anymore so this is a point where artists start to develop these new types of art which tend to be more secular cuz calvin does allow for visual imagery if it's You know, it has kind of pedagogical functions or things like that, but not in church and not in worship. So you get these more secular genres like still life painting or landscape painting, genre pictures of the insides of Dutch homes. So scenes of everyday life that don't have a religious, an overt religious message in them.
3: The development of a secular style in painting, which I'll return to in a moment, was one element in the emergence of a more secular society generally. One of the things that brought this society into being, Angela Van Halen argues, was the remarkable religious tolerance that prevailed in the Dutch Republic. The Calvinist or reformed church became the official religion. All office holders had to profess it and all outward signs of Catholicism were destroyed. But unofficially, something more like a don't ask don't tell policy seems to have been followed.
1: What's unusual about the Dutch Republic is that there was a great deal of religious tolerance. So rather than repressing the Catholics and not allowing them to worship or making martyrs of them, they were allowed to continue to worship as long as they weren't really public about it so that they had these house churches, often the attic of a home would be transformed into a kind of chapel space where people would go to Mass. And so it was secret but it was really quite open that the neighbors obviously would know that there was a church in that home and they would see people coming to Mass. But, and so it was a kind of way that the Roman Catholics were allowed to continue to worship as long as they made no pretense of being a public church. And I think there, that was probably always a threat that the Calvinist Church was the public church. but the Calvinist Church wasn't actually all that appealing to the to the majority of the population. So the majority probably were Roman Catholic. And so it was a way it was probably a really good move in terms of the city magistrates to allow the Roman Catholics to worship, so that there was it, there wasn't a lot of religious violence in the Dutch cities because of this toleration.
3: Toleration for different forms of belief radically changed the character of religious life. Before the Reformation, church and state authorities had treated any departure from orthodoxy as a deadly threat to the integrity of the Christian community. The coexistence of different faiths made religion more of a personal choice.
1: It becomes more of a private experience rather than something that's imposed on you by the ruler or by the governing authorities, which is the way that it had been in feudalism, that your religion tended to be the religion that of your ruler, uh, and so you had to conform to that. So to have this kind of personal choice means that religion does turn inwards. And so even Roman Catholicism, which was the traditional religion that had been imposed on people, becomes more of a private experience. that you And so to have these new private spaces and people choosing to be Roman Catholic rather than to be Calvinist or something else is a new thing. So I think there's probably more self-awareness amongst people that, that their religion is, is something that, that comes from within rather than being imposed from above. And it changes, I guess, public life more generally if you think of public life as not everybody being the same but having a lot of diverse groups, diverse opinions, diverse religions within public life, which leads to greater debate about religious issues as well. So what's said about the Dutch Republic is that it has a a kind of discussion culture that people began to discuss and to debate their differences rather than fighting about it. The
3: idea of a discussion culture, prompted by religious differences, can also be extended to the world of the visual arts. The legitimacy of images was a point of discussion going back to the first wave of Calvinist iconoclasm when the old churches were stripped of their ornaments in 1566. This debate continued at least to the time of the French invasion of 1672, when the churches were retaken and briefly redecorated by the Catholics. Angela Van Halen has written about one of the flashpoints in this discussion, the tomb of William of Orange, the leader of the Dutch revolt and the first Stadtholder, as he was called, of the New Republic. Literally, steward, an old medieval name for someone appointed by a lord to replace him in his absence, the office of Stadtholder was an anomaly. An appointed position which, due to William's prestige, also became a prerogative of his descendants. The first William was murdered by an agent of the Spanish in 1584.
1: When William of Orange is assassinated, for the longest time, he doesn't have much of a tomb. And people complained about this because he was seen as a a great hero and someone, almost a martyr, someone who had given his life in the birth of the nation. And so it was quite a bit later that this tomb finally was commissioned by the States General, by the, the sovereign body of the Netherlands. And it's really a lavish tomb that's set exactly where the high altar would have been in this Gothic church. So it's a little bit contradictory because as much as they've removed all statuary and all uh, religious art from the churches, here there's this really kind of lavish tomb that's built there that has two statues of William of Orange. And so there were people who who were critical of it at the time and and pointed out the contradiction that people might worship these images of William as if he were a saint because he was this kind of martyr. And then in 1650 it's William II who dies quite suddenly and at that moment the States General takes over and decides that there will not be a Stadtholder and so it's a, a kind of stadtholderless period where it's just the States General that rules and so it's in this period when there is no Stadtholder that you begin to see a lot of paintings of the Tomb of Orange and a lot of the paintings are quite funny because they take it from an oblique angle so that you never see the whole tomb, you never see the effigy of William of Orange but what you do see are the people who are standing in a circle around the tomb and so it's as if the body politic itself has reconfigured itself so that the emphasis is now not on the leader, the old kind of idea of a monarch or a political leader, but it's on the people and they seem to be standing around. Often you can see that they're talking to each other so there's this new idea that it's people maybe who can now discuss something as crucial as the form that sovereignty would take in their country. It seems like a crucial moment where people are very aware that somehow the public sphere has changed, that the body politic has changed for them, and that, in a sense, the people become more sovereign than this old idea of having one sovereign leader. You know, it was the body of the king that was the body politic, and when you no longer have that monarchical figure, it seems that it's the people who increasingly have some say in politics. Though it's, you know, a far cry from a democracy at this time.
3: The changing portrayal of the tomb of William of Orange in painting reflected a new emphasis on popular sovereignty in the later 17th century, Angela Van Halen says. But painting, in her view, did more than just reflect the political moods of the Dutch Republic. It was also an agent of change.
1: One thing that's crucial is the art market. That the because the church is no longer a great patron of the arts, because there's no court and monarch and not a real strong aristocracy in the Dutch Republic, that kind of aristocratic patronage is also not a really viable option for artists. And so art increasingly is sold on an open market, so that there are art dealers, there are art shops. People would go to artist studios to buy paintings. So painters are no longer making things that were commissioned specifically, so that, you know, if they are working for an aristocrat who wanted a, the patron had a great say in what was painted, or if you're working for the church as well, it sort of dictated what you would paint. Now it's turning to something that's more familiar to us where they're painting on spec. So they're trying to sort of come up with things that would appeal to a broad market, to a broad audience. They're trying to attract buyers on an open market. And so with that, you have a different kind of consumption of art too. Art becomes less expensive. These are a lot of these paintings are fairly small and so they're affordable. So you have a lot of art just in private homes, in domestic interiors. And so art becomes more a part of people's everyday life, that you have these paintings. And often Dutch paintings are pretty ambiguous. I mean, if you're looking at a painting of a woman in an interior and she's combing lice out of a child's hair you can come up with multiple possible, you know, meanings, what that would mean. So there, you know, it could be about purification and having a pure home and a cleanly home, and it could have those kind of moral meanings, but it, you know, it it works in, it's hard to tie down one meaning to these, these kind of paintings. And so it allows people to, it really needs the viewer to complete the work, that it's the interpretation of the viewer now that becomes more important than the meaning of the painting and so in that way it contributes to this discussion culture that people now can discuss and debate the meanings of a painting and I think the more ambiguous the painting the more interesting it is that if you're buying a painting to hang in your home you don't want something that that has a single didactic moral message I think you'd rather have something that you can look at and talk about for a long long time and that you can interpret in different ways and that, you know, your guests can come and see and talk about and interpret in different ways as well. So
3: So what would be a contrast with the ambiguous painting? I mean the big mythological
1: yeah, so, Tableau. Yeah, let's say, history where, which in a way
3: carries its own meanings. Yeah, yeah, so the contrast
1: would be in the Amsterdam Town Hall, They're history paintings, and so they're commissioned by the Amsterdam government, they're very much about Republican values, what it is to be a good civic leader, the kind of virtues that a leader would have, and so there the moral meanings are more more obvious and they're more tied to texts, that often history paintings are, you know, they go back to classical literature, the Bible, mythology, it requires a more educated, a more learned viewer, someone who's well-read, who knows these texts, and then can see how the painter has put this story into paint. But the meaning then lies a little bit in the text as well, whereas the paintings done on the open market, the genre paintings, are not tied to text. They're just these little scenes of everyday life that don't have you know, a meaning that says easy to nail down or to find in a text.
3: Paintings made with an eye on the market, in Angela Van Halen's view, tend to be less text-based and less didactic than paintings done for aristocratic, civic, or ecclesiastical patrons. The world of everyday experience replaces the world of myth. Paintings become more ambiguous and less obviously edifying. But the banal subjects and placid scenes can sometimes be deceptive, she warns. Dutch genre paintings often ripple with subtext and what is not there can be as significant as what is.
1: There are a lot of paintings of the interiors of the whitewashed churches and so you have these very calm, very still, very peaceful paintings of the interior of a white church and so it's really you're looking at the play of light on a white wall and so there isn't much happening there unless you know and people at the time would know the whole violent history of these churches which had been roman catholic places of worship which had been then through the iconoclasm violently cleansed of all of their past history so there's a way that the whole history of these churches is being repressed in these paintings so that in those paintings it would the subtext would be the violence of of iconoclasm and of the dutch revolt and of the um, the you know taking of the churches from the roman catholics but when you look at them people always write about them in terms of how calm and how silent how silent they are but it's a kind of silence that's underpinned by violence i think at the same time and so so there often is that subtext there is an awareness of the history of how they came to to that point um, and there is an awareness that they're building a new kind of society that's less like a traditional society based in religion and monarchy, Roman Catholicism and and monarchy. And they're using painting to kind of work out this new collective identity of what it is to be a republic, what it is to have a society that's based on merchant capitalism, commerce, the exchange of goods. Did painting
3: have a heightened importance in the Dutch Republic as opposed to other countries, or are we just because we admire it so we're more aware of it?
1: I think it did. I mean what's been written about it is that what the theater was to Elizabethan England, so what Shakespeare was to to the English, painting was to the Dutch. The Dutch didn't have as strong of a literary tradition or a theater tradition as say the English or the, or the French. So there was a way it did seem that they were working things out in paint. So there is a way that the visual seems more important to the Dutch somehow than in other places and possibly partly because of this open market I think for painting that there was a greater demand for painting there is a larger segment of the population that could buy painting there were lots of printed images as well that circulated through this society science and medicine changed dramatically in in the Dutch Republic and so they're using there's more emphasis on direct observation of natural phenomena and so they're using images there as well, and for scientific and and medical research, too. So there's a way that, that visual imagery is very central to this society in ways that maybe it's not in other places.
3: This centrality of visual imagery made the Netherlands a leader in the sciences as well as in the fine arts. The founder of modern anatomy, Andreas Vesalius, was Dutch, as was the inventor of the first workable microscope, Anton van Leeuwenhoek, both were pioneers of direct observation.
1: Rather than a science that's based on received knowledge, on reading, uh, you know, classical texts of medicine like Galen, there's a new emphasis, um, at, you know, with Vesalius and people like that, of actually looking at the inside of a human body. So the Dutch were doing public dissections in their anatomy theaters where people could come and see a body being dissected. So that knowledge of the body now is coming through direct observation of the body. And so visual imagery plays a really key role because then there are these uh, medical treatises and scientific treatises that are really richly illustrated. So there's a lot of work for artists doing that kind of thing as well, doing you know scientific illustration, medical illustration.
3: The growth of science and the expanding art market supported a vibrant visual culture during what has been called the Dutch Golden Age in the 17th century. Painting had a prominent place in civic culture, and painters were aware, Angela Van Halen says, of the position that they occupied.
1: It seems to me Dutch paintings often are also about painting itself and about the new place of painting in society. So in the art treatises, and there are a number of art treatises published in Dutch. It is a kind of commonplace to refer to painters as peaceful soldiers, that somehow they're doing some work on behalf of the, the civic population that should be highly regarded, that they're sort of like these war heroes who fight and give their lives um, to protect the populace. They're often put together in that way, which makes you think that painting itself maybe is helping to keep the peace if the painter is a peaceful soldier and keeping the peace by allowing people to debate their differences rather than to to fight out their differences maybe as part of it that you have these really open-ended paintings and people can uh, whether you support the Stadtholder or if you support the states general you can debate those things rather than um, it kind of opens up a new forum for discussion about political differences and about religious differences as well I think
3: Dutch paintings invited conversation. One way in which they did this was by a certain self-consciousness. They invited scrutiny of themselves as paintings as well as of their subjects.
1: They're sometimes described as self-aware images so that if you have, I suppose, a painting of a whitewashed church, of of an empty church interior, it can't help but be a painting that draws attention to the fact that even though painting is repressed in the religious sphere, even though painting is not no longer part of the decoration of the church, an artist can now make a painting of an empty church. That's a kind of commentary on the history of art itself. That you know, the painting is in a way drawing attention to the fact that painting has been repressed here in re- in the religious interior. So now, it's. Um, going, you know, more into uh, the domestic interior. So in your home now you're hanging a painting of an empty church, of a whitewashed church. And so it's a kind of meta-commentary about what's going on with painting and what the new place of painting in society is. If painting is no longer connected to the church, then it's doing something different. And in in a way it's offering a commentary on, on the repression of the image, on religious debates about the power of the image and things like that. So they're trying to find a new place in a way. Painters have to figure out what their new place in society is if they can no longer rely on traditional forms of patronage.
3: Painting under patronage is assigned its subjects. The artist will add his unique touch and may even subvert his prescribed text, but the text and its interpretation remain a given. Painting for the market though still dependent, is more free to interrogate the meaning of things.
1: Paintings will take a little moment in time, like a, you know, the Vermeers of a woman standing by a window holding a picture, so this very still domestic interior. And so the paintings kind of freeze that. It's like they slow time down and allow you to really kind of look closely at a single moment and think about its significance to the whole as well. You know, there's a lot of thinking about the change role of women in this society. There are a lot of paintings of women in domestic interiors and what's their new role in merchant capitalist society as well. Women had had some new powers. They were in charge of the domestic realm. They worked with their husband in business. If their husbands were gone a lot, if they were overseas a lot, women were left in charge of the home. So there's a kind of interrogation of what is the private sphere? How do we define it? What are women's new roles? What are their responsibilities? And a lot of that is being worked out in these paintings of the interiors of homes, like the Vermeer paintings. What are the boundaries of the home? Who belongs in the home? Who should be kept outside of the home? People are beginning to publicly debate what is the domestic and what is its importance um, to the overall social structure. So, I mean, there had always been domestic life, but the, when you begin to see hundreds of paintings of women doing mundane tasks in a domestic interior, it shows you that it's under investigation, that it's up for debate, that people are really thinking it through and wondering, you know, it must have some changed significance for people. It must have a new kind of importance in this society.
3: So is it meaningful to say that the the private is being made public?
1: I think it is, yeah, I think there's a new way that the private is being publicized and debated which makes it public. And the fact that you have these paintings of private life, of domesticity that are hung in homes so that people in their homes are looking at paintings of the interiors of homes. And so it's a way of defining your own home, I guess, in your own domestic life. And of talking about it, because the paintings are always conversation pieces. They're, I think, made to prompt conversation and to prompt people to really talk through some of these issues, some of these social changes that are happening and, and how to make sense of it in your own life, in your own interior.
3: In its attention to domestic life, painting was playing a part in the emergence of a new kind of society, in which the private had a public value that it had never previously possessed. But painting, in Angela Van Halen's opinion, also had a memorial function. As well as advancing the new society, it remembered the old one.
1: One of the things I've argued about some of these paintings is that they, especially the paintings of these emptied churches, that they do the work of mourning, that it's not like they just forget what these spaces were or what they meant to people, but they, by creating these very still kind of paintings where you're just looking at an empty interior it does allow people to work through that history, their own history, so I think people have, don't forget, they don't forget all the traumas of of the past and of the wars and the loss of certain forms of religion, that's still part of the present moment, so there's a way sometimes with the Dutch Republic it's always about capitalism and science and um, and democracy so there's a way we always kinda project it into the future but I think it's this pivotal moment where people are also looking back at what they have lost I mean the fact that the Stadtholder is so popular amongst the people is possibly this desire to have a monarchical society that maybe not everybody went Yay, republicanism is better than, than monarchicism. It seems that the majority probably preferred the old way, but they're having new things imposed on them, and so they have to work that through. Calvinism is really harsh. When I think what started me on this was once reading how, and this goes on for centuries, I think, the Roman Catholics would go back to the churches and pray on the graves of their ancestors, because you would pray for the dead. And Calvinism doesn't allow you to pray for the dead. So that kind of thing of when somebody close to you dies, it's a complete separation. You, you lose that connection, because you're not allowed to pray for that person. You're not allowed to pray for their spirit, for their soul. You can't say masses for the dead to kind of assure them some place in the afterlife to assure their salvation you're completely powerless with calvinism you have this doctrine of predestination so that the idea is that god from before the beginning of time has separated the damned from the elect and you don't know if you're amongst the elect which means you have salvation or if you're amongst the damned and so there i think a lot of the anxiety stems from that i mean that's weber's thesis too, right? That there's a way that because you can do nothing to assure your own salvation, there's this great anxiety really about salvation because, you know, you can't do anything for your own salvation, you can't do anything for the salvation of the people you love either. So all you have is your life on earth. So it kind of throws you back into the world in a way that maybe is new, that you're not oriented towards the afterlife so much as you are more in the here and now but always that uncertainty about the things that you you can't control with this this very distant god of Calvinism.
3: German sociologist Max Weber, whom Angela Van Halen mentions here, argued that the doctrine of predestination produces a spirit that Weber calls this-worldly asceticism. Protestants, Weber argued, were denied the comfort of the Catholic doctrine that salvation follows from participation in the sacramental life of the church. And so they pursued worldly success as a sign of their election. Van Halen finds something of the same spirit in Dutch painting. It's a worldly art, but spiritual and immaterial qualities, she has written, are still embedded in its painted surfaces. One evidence is a preoccupation with transience.
1: Paintings can capture a fleeting moment and make it endure. And so in that way, it it transcends the kind of passing of life. And a lot of Dutch painting seems very fixated on that. You have pictures of children blowing soap bubbles, and so the bubble is so ephemeral. It's, you know, So it's this moment just before the bubble pops, or a vase of flowers that are just starting to wilt. So there's always this kind of hint of death, that everything in life is very fleeting, is very transient. You know, there's sort of a cloud passing over the sun and the shadows on the land. Like, There's always that kind of awareness of time and the passing of time and the way that painting can work against that. Painting can kind of freeze a moment of time and capture a moment of time. There's the painting um, have an old woman who's praying and there's a cat pulling the tablecloth and all of the dishes are about to crash down and the Dutch, it's in the Rijksmuseum, the Dutch call it the endless prayer because she'll always be praying even though in the painting you see the next moment coming where the the cat disrupts her and you see these little signs of her death there's an hourglass and she's elderly and uh, so you can see that you know her days on on, on earth are numbered too. But it freezes her, endless prayer, like she's, you know, it's always that thing of uh, this suspension of time, this uh, drawing out of time. And so maybe it's that anxiety about death and about the afterlife and about salvation, about all those things that you can't determine or know anymore. You can't see either this kind of invisibility of, of the beyond, what's beyond life, what's beyond the world.
0: You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley.
3: Angela Van Halen's work on early modern Dutch painting has been done during the last five years as part of a research project called Making Publics." It's made up of scholars from all over North America who are investigating the formation of publics in Europe between the years 1500 and 1700. One of their innovations has been to pay particular attention to the role of things in this process physical things like paintings, but also things in the broader sense of whatever gathers interest. The way paintings foster what Van Halen calls a discussion culture is an example. One of Van Halen's main sources on this point is Bruno Latour, a French anthropologist, historian, and philosopher of science. The body politic, Latour has written, is not just composed of people. For him, it also includes the myriad of things around which people assemble and disassemble. These are objects, like paintings, but also issues which a painting may become. People make society around the things that are of concern to them.
1: What Latour says that I think Is really important is that it's the issue that brings people together and so it's the same thing of rather than thinking you have already some preset identity it's like me and my group and we have our we have a position we have an answer and then we go and sort of debate it with other counter publics who may have other positions that I think Latour is working against that kind of identity politics, that there are all these identity groups who already have their position and you can already say, oh, this group is going to say this and this group is going to say that, that it's really the issue, so that the issue might shake it up. It might, uh, someone who's who's gay might agree with someone who's a Christian fundamentalist about damming a river or something like that. You know, there is a way you don't have to be sedimented in those identity groups so much as to really kind of think about an issue and, and to think about these what he calls these matters of common concern. That's what brings people together. And so it, can, it opens up more potential for, for something different to happen, something that's not predictable and, and that we don't all already know. So I think that's really crucial, that it's the thing that comes first, and then people gather around the thing, and then they work out who they are by discussing that thing, that matter of concern.
3: Angela Van Halen's studies of Dutch painting show how people assemble around and through things. Many of her colleagues in making publics have been thinking along the same lines. One is Bronwyn Wilson, a professor of art history at the University of British Columbia with a special interest in early modern Venice and Italy more generally. Her studies of court life have convinced her that during the Renaissance, the kind of attention that was formerly focused on the person of the prince begins to shift to things, new commodities, new texts, new objects that could hold and convey people's concerns. Wilson gives an example that her colleague Paul Yaknan develops in a new book they co-edited called Making Publics in Early Modern Europe, Shakespeare's Hamlet.
4: What's fascinating is that actually the what became a matter of concern among people was Hamlet, that people who would go to the theater would write down, they might have a commonplace book, which is a book where you would write bits of, of uh, text. So there might be a, a phrase from Hamlet there. Hamlet might be then performed on a ship off the coast of Africa. So the, what you have is something that is written in some kind of a manuscript, it's then performed in a theater, it's then copied down by somebody in an audience, it's then taken and performed in a different kind of space, and it's that the kind of mobility of objects from place to place and from one medium into another that is something that I think is crucial to thinking about this process of making, that this is about the making of publics is that mobility of this idea really of Hamlet, and that's fundamentally different from the th- that kind of mechanism is fundamentally different from the ways that uh, that court culture worked in terms of the focus around, around the prince.
3: Hamlet circulates as a text. It must be printed before it can be performed, as it was, aboard the Red Dragon an East India Company ship lying off the coast of Sierra Leone in September of 1610. And the printing press is obviously crucial to the general acceleration of culture in early modern Europe. But Hamlet also circulates as a vortex of interest. Hamlet's dilemma, who am I, what should I do, becomes a means by which others can define their situations. And this, in part, is what a public is. Ronald Wilson says.
4: It's very hard to have evidence for what a public is. I mean, how can you describe a public? There's no, this is something that's always in flux. It's always something that's changing. And it's often not the, it's not necessarily those people in a public who have some kind of an idea of what they want to do. Instead, what's important is the way that uh, different kinds of um, media can solicit interest. They can, it's, It's that idea that Michael Werner talks about, that he refers to as active uptake, that forms of culture can solicit interests of, of interested parties, and those interested people start to kind of gather around something that has a relevance. And so it provides a locus around which people can come together and they can talk, and that is something that is very different from the prints being the focus, but instead it's these kinds of objects that are circulating. And print is obviously the thing that circulates so well and why it's such an important part of public making in this early period.
3: Objects, when they become matters of interest, become part of the social world. There aren't just things over here and people over there, nor are the objects of our attention entirely passive. Things according to Bronwyn Wilson, actively appeal to us.
4: A chair asks you to sit on it. And I think it's something that we really need to be more attentive to is how the world around us solicits us and asks us to engage with it. And in the early modern period, that's what seems key is that you have these Older forms of knowledge that are are important. The kind of rediscovery of ancient texts, and you have these this kind of confrontation with these new you know new worlds. You have this worlds previously unknown to Europeans. You have uh, encounter with objects never before seen, and you have this kind of the, this new technology of print, and there's many other things. You know the use of gunpowder, the the invention of the keel, the use of the fork. I mean there's all kinds of, of developments in the in the 15th and 16th century that are contributing to changes. But what I think is really important is the way that objects are soliciting they're soliciting people's engagement with them in a manner that was, Previously unknown, and that's something that's really exciting, and it's, I think, what's really distinctive about the period.
3: Publics, in Bronwyn Wilson's view, are formed in the interplay between people and things. The idea is not so strange in a time when new media are manifestly forming new publics, but it does still clash with a lot of received ideas about the public as some sort of stable entity. We tend, for example, to speak about the public as though it were a place, the public sphere. But Bronwyn Wilson and her MAPS colleagues, MAPS is their short form for making publics, think of it as more of a happening. And this view of publics also accords well, Angela Van Halen says, with new thinking about the nature of space
1: it's a kind of spatial metaphor that there is this thing called the public sphere and you can enter and exit it as if it is a space. So in recent theory about space, there's been a rethinking of space not as a bounded entity, but as a process, that social space is something that's produced, it's connected very much to time. You can't think about space without thinking about about time. And I think with publics, if you're thinking about the public sphere as well, to think about it as a bounded space so that there are insiders and outsiders and you can go in and out of it, is that kind of old way of thinking about space. And so with the MAPS project in general, I think we've moved away from thinking about bounded spaces to thinking about publics, not as groups, but as, as a kind of process. Because there's a way the public sphere is always virtual. It's and so it's always difficult to pin down what it actually is because, in a way, it exists more in the imagination than it does in... You have to believe that there's a kind of public sphere, that you can enter this public sphere. But to actually find empirical evidence of a public sphere is, is, is more difficult. Like There's always a kind of... It's a fiction. It's sort of like the nation, right? You have to believe in it, but... So there's always that kind of fictional aspect of the public sphere as well as the actual historical public sphere. So it's kind of a virtual space as well as an actual space. The construction of publics,
3: in Angela Van Halen's account, always requires a certain imaginative reach. A solitary reader imagines other readers. A radio broadcaster imagines listeners, who may or may not materialize. A spectator at a sporting event imagines that it's his city or his country that is playing. Van Halen and her colleagues view society as something that is continuously being made, and made, so to speak, on the fly. Society, in other words, is not an empty container that people fill up with facts, fables, and controversies of all kinds. It's the facts, fables, and controversies that make society in the first place. One source for this view is what Bruno Latour and some of his colleagues call actor network theory. Its gist is that society is a network of people and things arranged and shifting alliances with no ground story to which everything else can finally be reduced. Paul Yakman is a Shakespeare scholar, a professor of English at McGill, and the founder and director of the Making Publix Research Project, or TEAM, as he sometimes calls it. He spoke with me about what he and his colleagues have learned as their research on the nature of publics has gone on over the five-year term of their project.
2: It's not just about the things that we call publics. It's about the process of making them. And indeed, what we came to understand is that the object of study was processual, rather than an entity, and uh, a a metaphor is, if you think about society as flowing water, publics are particular formations in the flowing water, and they have a kind of durability, but, like, if you're looking at flowing water and you've got a, a stone under the surface, which will create a certain formation in the water, that can be quite durable. If the water level changes, it can disappear. And as now that I've come to understand Bruno Latour's idea of uh, actor network theory, I have a, a better way of explaining it in terms of association. That society is not a relentlessly structured thing. Society certainly has its structures and it has its durable features. But society is something that is made all the time, is being made all the time by people and things as they change their relationships with one another, and that changes the kind of networks that make the associations that make society. So we think of it much more fluid, much more, in a much more plastic way, and it took a number of years for us to understand the fullness of our intuition, that what we were talking about was the way groups of people and individuals change fundamental relationships among people and things, often by introducing new things into the world. And this has changed society. And for me, this was tremendously important. Now I understood the structured dimension of society, but also the way in which society was always up for grabs. And especially in a period of time during the reformations, the period of the reformations, extraordinary kinds of of movement in England from rural communities to the city, extraordinary kinds of changes in the way people frame their life of faith, all of the deeply unsettling that opened up these possibilities for greater change, not to mention the introduction of new technologies such as printing and playing. You know, the playhouse is an invention. It's something that didn't exist in England until the late 16th century but the payoff for me is understanding how um, people create their world Uh, and understanding it but also being able to develop an account that is convincing that will be able to convince other people that people create their world now they don't create it whole cloth we don't have that level of freedom They create it within certain given structures and within given terms that descend to them from traditions and traditional structures. Uh, But it's much more up for grabs than we thought and it's also much more fragmented. You know, it's never a whole cloth. It's only a whole cloth when you get up very very high and are looking down on it. Paul Yachnan, the director of Making Publix.
3: You'll be hearing more from him next time when I continue my series on Publix with a look at his specialty, Elizabethan Theatre.
0: On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues next week. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The hourly news is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.